They're coming to get you, Barbara. Stop it. You're ignorant. They're coming for you, Barbara. Stop it. You're acting like a child. They're coming for you. Look, there comes one of them now. This is ContraZoom, where we go back and forth about film. I'm your host, Dakota Arsenault, and this episode is presented by Aesthetic Magazine. It's that time of year again. Summer is gone. Pumpkin spice lattes are available at Starbucks. And mini gourds are sold at grocery stores. That's right. We're coming up to Halloween. Now, I'm not much of a modern horror movie fan myself, as I get scared far too easily, but I do love classic horror films. What started out as wanting to watch the original monster movies, Frankenstein, The Mummy, Nosferatu, The Invisible Man, and more, has since turned into just trying to watch all these old thrillers and horror movies I can. Today, I'm joined by Stephanie Pryor to discuss what we recommend to check out this Halloween. How are you? Oh, I'm good. How are you? I am great. It's that spooky time of year where you yeah. get to wear sweaters all the time, right? Oh, I love it. <laughs> uh, we did things a little bit differently this year. Uh, in June of this year, the Criterion Channel was launched in North America, containing one of the largest and best collections of classic films, foreign favorites, and modern masterpieces. I've gotten to watch for the first time films like The Seventh Seal and The Mood for Love and Police Story. They are predictably also promoting their own spooky October films to check out, but we made a list of movies we have never seen that we want to watch that are available on the Criterion channel right now. So after this episode, if you feel so compelled, you can check all of these out. All right, so we're going to get right into it. The first one that I think was sort of the real uh, impetus for wanting to do this episode based around the Criterion channel was the movie Godzilla from 1954, directed by Ishiharo Honda. This is Toho's classic monster movie. Mm-hmm. Um, when Criterion, on the, on the outside of their, their films, they list a number, and they, were, they don't exactly go in chronological order, but they sort of do. And earlier this year, they announced that they were going to announce what film number 1000 is. And that was a pretty big thing in the Criterion Channel community. Sorry, the Criterion community. Um, And when it finally came out earlier this year, it was almost the complete package of original Godzilla Toho films. I believe it was about 20 films in total, something like that, with gorgeous artwork. Uh, that really made me curious. I was like, hey, I've never seen this movie. We should probably check it out. And, and I brought this up to you, and you had never seen it either. We, yeah. We've both sort of seen some of the recent Godzilla-ish movies. Um, uh, we, we'd seen... What, what was the most uh, recent uh, one? I'm tra- Have I even seen a Godzilla one? Have, did you know. ever see, like, the, the 1998? No. No, neither have I, but... Um, there was, uh, you know, I actually, maybe I haven't seen any because I'm, I'm thinking of the, um, the King Kong yeah, sort of universe of yeah. that they've incorporated now into it. And they just released earlier this year, Godzilla King of the Monsters, which was uh, a sequel to the Godzilla movie that came out several years ago now. But this is all a part of the same continuity. But this was, I guess, <laughs> apparently our first <laughs> Godzilla movie. Yeah. Um, what'd you think of it? Uh, I was very excited for this one because I love the original King Kong. And so wanting to go back to those original monster films, uh, I was very excited for it. So um, I had high expectations. And honestly, I think it lived up to it. I really enjoyed the film. I enjoyed the story. I enjoyed the acting. And even though 
in today's standards, of course, the, the special effects don't hold up as well. I still think for the time and for what it is, that it actually looks quite good. Mm-hmm. This movie, you know, one of the things I always kind of knew about the Godzilla backstory was that it was based around uh, Japan's desire to not have nuclear wars or bombs dropped again on other people. And right. it was them following up at the end of World War II when, when the two atomic bombs dropped in uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Uh, this was sort of their way of detailing the horrors that they went through and, and how it was afterwards. And so I, I kind of knew that going in. I was going to wonder, oh, was this all sort of subtext or, or how are they going to present itself? But really a good portion of this movie is talking about the H-bomb, which is the hydrogen bomb, um, which is a slightly less powerful version of an atomic bomb, still quite deadly and terrifying in its own right, um, and how the people of Japan are coping with this idea that different countries have this capability as well, and how do you recover when you've literally had two cities blown off the map in loss of life of thousands upon thousands, and those that did survive you could barely call it surviving the the trauma and radiation and absolute pain that they went through both physically and and mentally and it was a really prominent theme and you know this we, we watch this because we we're wanting to watch like the sort of classic monster movies and it really is you know the old joke and the real monster was man right yeah um but you talked about you kind of alluding to what you were liking about it, but like, let's really talk about it. The yeah. set pieces. Yeah. They were amazing. They were really good. And I think with the, um, in combination with, uh, different shooting styles and different shots that they were able to get, I think it really resonated and it was probably why it, it was such a, is held so high. Right at the beginning of the movie, they say that the movie was made in participation with the Japanese Coast Guard, and so you wonder what that's about, but there's quite a few shots of boats and things like that, mm -hmm. and you've got the military involved, so that's where obviously where their participation comes into play, and it really adds a, a level of authenticity, uh, just like you get with modern war films when you actually see real military equipment and things like that, you understand what sort of things that they're dealing with. Um, but I think the, the, the biggest thing is you've got this giant lizard creature that's stomping around Tokyo, uh, and you actually really see it. You know, it's we're no stranger to seeing older films using miniature models or matte paintings or things like that or stop motion, however they want to sort of have some sort of destruction on a larger scale. And once again, proving that practical effects yep. will always be better always. than whatever visual effects. Like as powerful as it is and as great as Avengers Endgame looked, it doesn't hold really comparison to, to something like this. No, definitely not. Like the, the apps, I was shocked by the absolute detail of these miniature sets. You know, you could see the, the streetcar lines overhead, yeah. uh, the power lines all connecting, uh, the buildings. Obviously, you know, there'd be a shot of someone standing in the window and then the next shot when the building's being destroyed, there's obviously no one in there. You could see that. But the building looks really realistic. It's not like it's just made of toothpicks or matchsticks or something. They do a really good job with it. No, they do. And I really appreciate that. The creature looked interesting it's a little comical you know 
in today's standards and today's world of monsters uh, with its big googly eyes and its you, you know kind of tell it's a bit of a rubber mouth all set. the time yeah uh, rubber suit sorry yeah suit. but um i think from the neck down still terrifying <laughs> <laughs> yeah um obviously don't want to spoil too much about any of these these movies because we do want you to check them out but it's always interesting looking at a movie especially when it's a monster movie you you have a sort of a very simple concept how do you build an entire story around it how do you fill an hour and a half film with backstory and character development and things like that and and you know you compare it to we we enjoy a lot of these other early monster movies, you look at something like The Mummy where most of its story comes in flashbacks and everything after right. that's kind of, you know, you can skip it. <laughs> it doesn't really matter. You're just there for the, the mummy character. This actually has a really good backstory, character development, really solid acting. You look at the cast and see what else they've done and most of them were working with people like Akira Kurosawa. So you have some really serious acting power in this movie. Yeah, some heavy hitters. Mm-hmm. Uh, overall, you know, I, I definitely really enjoyed it. It almost, like, I, I enjoyed it so much that I want to watch other ones, but it makes me nervous because I know <laughs> yeah. very quickly they get cartoonish. Right, yeah. I think there's there's a good batch in all, amongst all the Godzilla movies that aren't going to live up to this one, but I think that there are some good alternatives to this as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so the next film we want to talk about is The Blob from 1958, directed by Irvin S. Yeaworth Jr. This was a B-movie that was starring Stephen McQueen, his last movie that he went under that name before he shortened it to just Steve McQueen, which is obviously a much better name to go by. Um, And through its popularity of, of being a double feature it eventually got so big that it became the main attraction and even was re-released when the towering inferno came out as uh, another disaster movie in a similar vein it was sort of misrepresented in that <laughs> sense uh, to sort of capitalize on mcqueen's huge stature at the time as he was in the towering inferno and that was like one of the biggest movies uh, of the 60s and so we have this very sort of classic, we're, we're sort of stuck, this is, this is a bit of an odd era for, for Hollywood horror movies because you, in the 40s and early 50s you have the, the classic universal monster movies and then later in the 50s you, you haven't quite reached the, the turn, the breakdown of the Hollywood system where you have a whole bunch of new upstarts where they're sort of really playing with the technology in new and interesting ways. Coming out in 1958, it's a bit of an outlier for what you would expect otherwise. And even with the, I would even say with the the values it promotes, where it both has the, the edgy rebel teenagers, but at the same time, it's got that respect for authority at the same time. So it's kind of in a weird mushy area where you you don't really know how seriously to take it this is also the only color film that we watched that we're going to talk about today everything else is in black and white um it was enjoyable was it it was okay (laughs) it was it was fun uh yeah it wasn't good yeah yeah i have my qualms with it um i think with it being the only color film that we watched i think that hindered it i think if it was black and white it might have been you know, more convincing. Mm-hmm. Um, but apart from that, I just, I didn't enjoy it very much. And I think it's interesting that this was made four years later or released four years later from Godzilla and just the differences in the special effects and the practical effects that are, that are used 
um, you'd think that they'd be either similar or better coming being released later, but they just felt like eons, like backwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, there's a there's a lot of really terrible matte paintings. There's a a scene where the blob attacks the local movie theater, which is what, what, what were they calling the types of movies that they were watching? I don't remember. It was some sort of like horror movies, but they were calling them creepy flicks or something like that. I can't. Oh yeah, that they kept saying they wanted to go see. Yeah, the spooky. I can't remember. So it was something. Very they just kept silly. saying the flicks or something. Like something that. like that. Yeah. yeah. Um, but the blob attacks this uh, movie theater, and so you get the you know the wide shot of the movie theater, and you get the insert shot of all the kids inside watching it and eating their popcorn, and then it's this really terrible matte painting, like emphasis on matte two-dimensional no shadowing very clearly a painting where it's like they just threw this slime substance over top of <laughs> yeah, it yeah yeah and it was just ridiculous they did that with like the diner as well oh yeah yeah that was, that was really bad yeah. the way they did that uh pretty pretty hilarious but uh not something that really stands the test yeah. of time i kind of wished at the beginning when the blob is first introduced and the old man finds it and it like first attaches itself to his his arm that looked cool and convincing and it had like a slick gooey feel to it but then later on it just looked like a big ball of like rubber mm-hmm. it seemed like unfortunately a big issue with all horror movies is the more you show of the monster the worse it looks and the less scared you are of it and, and so it's why something like in jaws you only actually see the shark like twice yeah the rest of it is you know you see the top fin or you know just the water parting or things like that blood in the water whereas this like as the movie goes on you see it more and more and more and it just <laughs> gets more and more ridiculous yeah it does um I, I probably enjoy watching this movie, you know, if, uh, if I was with a bunch of friends or something like oh, that. Oh, totally, and, yeah. And, you know, you, you're drinking a little bit, and it's one of those movies where you can you can laugh along yep. with it. Yeah. I think what's most interesting is even if, you know, you didn't know who, who Steve McQueen was, he definitely was completely acting circles around everyone else in this movie. Yeah, I agree with that. Obviously showing why he was destined to become a movie star. He does a pretty good job with some pretty terrible dialogue, <laughs> but uh, but I think we understand why he became uh, the legend that he is. All right, now this is going to be pretty fun. Uh, I actually am going to play a clip from uh, a friend of the show, Callum McNabb, who hosts a horror-themed podcast called Scare Traducing, and he is going to share his Halloween text. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob. Hello everyone, uh, my name is Callum McNabb. I am a co-host of a podcast called Scare Traducing, And don't worry, we are aware of the fact that it is a horrible name for a podcast. Probably literally the worst name, in fact. Um, But it is quite logical once you know what we're about. Uh, Before I get into any more details, I'd like to thank Dakota for including us here and giving us the chance to ramble on about some horror films and scary stuff that we enjoy. My co-host, unfortunately, Isela Martinez isn't with me today. We're literally about to go on holiday as I record this now. She's just getting some last bits and bobs. So I'm going to do a very, very quick 
horror Halloween recommendations list sort of thing for films that I don't think get talked about enough. Our podcast normally covers horror franchises, the reason being myself and Hizela are big horror fans and we noticed the more we talked about horror films, the more we would have blank spaces when it came to franchises like we had never seen any of the Halloween films except the original. I had never seen any of the Chucky films. Isella had seen most of them, but I hadn't. Paranormal Activity, we've seen all of them, and we actually enjoyed all of them, except the last one. We never saw the last one. So, the podcast is about us filling in those blank spaces, but by doing the entire franchise. However, today, I'm just going to give a quick five-minute rundown of some films that you should check out for Halloween, or if you're just wanting a horror movie to watch. Also, I am Scottish, so if anyone's wondering why I say film and not film, I don't know, that's just how we say it here. Sorry about that. Deal with it. So the first one I want to talk about is Frenzy. It's a 1972 uh, British film by Alfred Hitchcock. He went back to the UK uh, towards the end of his career, and it's not his best work. Let's be honest, you know, Hitchcock had his day, and then as it came to the end, you know, his films weren't the masterpieces that he was renowned for. However, I don't think this film gets talked about enough. It's kind of like Hitchcock doing his traditional man on the run because he's been wrongly convicted or wrongly accused sort of plotline that he's had for various years, but with like a killer edge to it, a nasty edge to it, a bit of bite, which shows that even in Hitchcock's later years, you know, he did have the, the goods to make something which was creepy, which was violent, which was, you know, shocking for its time. It's not up there with, again, as I've said, it's not a cycle, it's not a vertigo, it's not North by Northwest, it's not Rear Window, it's not The Birds, it's not that period of Hitchcock. But not enough people have seen Frenzy. If you like Hitchcock and you like murder mysteries and you like that sort of thing, serial killers and horror, it's, it's a horror adjacent and it's a nice sort of return to that dark edge that we all know Hitchcock had in his heyday and he did it towards the end and not enough people talk about it. 1972, Frenzy. Number two on my list, I'm jumping forward quite a number of years in time, but again, I'm carrying on the theme of this list. It's not really a list of like what's the scariest or you know, what are the most classic films? Because you can find horror lists about them anywhere. You know, people recommend The Shining or The Exorcist or Halloween or whatever, Friday the 13th, you know. I'm trying to give you some films that you won't have heard of before or you or you may have heard of but never seen before. Apologies if you have seen any of these films and you think this list isn't as niche as I thought it would be. You know, some people have got bigger, you know, cinematic peripheries than others. Again, I apologise, I'm just trying to get out some films that I love, or at least respect, that are horror or horror adjacent that don't get talked about enough. Number two, 2011, Kill List. Directed by Ben Wheatley, uh, in my opinion his best film, and for the majority of this film it plays out kind of like a really quiet kitchen sink drama about contract killers in um, rural England. There's nothing, I mean, it's a little bit freaky as it goes on, and then you hit that third act, and oh boy, do things kick into gear. I actually think it would be an interesting pairing with um, Hereditary by Ari Aster. Not for its style or it, what it, you know, the characters it deals with, but um, 
certainly certain themes kind of mirror and I would like to do a double feature of the two. The only problem with doing that is they are very bleak films. You know, once I finish Kill List, it's very unlikely that I'm going to want to stick on Hereditary and be even more depressed. <laughs> but, um, you know, if you're in, into that sort of thing, if you're into Hereditary, I love Hereditary. Kill List is one to check out. Number two on my list, Kill List. Number three is from 2016 and is probably the most popular film I'm going to include on here. Most of you might even have seen this. It's a big director, it's got certain big stars in it. 2016, it's The Neon Demon. As I've said before, already like two seconds ago, a lot of people have seen this. And a lot of people have judgments on this. I think this is Refn's best film. And I, I believe Isela agrees with me. In fact, I know she agrees with me because she doesn't like Drive. I do, she doesn't. So, you know, what else is this? And she loves this film. The Neon Demon. If you have seen this, and you're one of the people that thinks it was empty and, you know, so surface level, I actually agree with you. I think Refn is having so much joy with the model industry, the fashion industry, and the jealousy that surrounds it. You know, the stereotypical jealousy that surrounds it and the just surface level, like all surface, no substance, something like that. Um, I think he's having so much fun with it that he thinks almost that fashion is so empty you could literally put any theme under it and it'll fit. So he throws in witchcraft. He throws in necrophilia. Like, it's all there. It's not a terrifying fest, but it is, in my opinion, one of the most enjoyable horror films of the last decade. It's one I've rewatched many times. It's definitely one of the most beautiful. Like, the film looks gorgeous. And the music in this is one of my favourite scores of all time. Uh, the music is uh, by Cliff Martinez. And I've listened to that score over and over again. If you have seen it, give it another chance. If you haven't seen it, expect a gorgeous, gorgeous-looking film that won't, again, terrify you, but it will deal with some things that are uncomfortable and unpleasant, and it's just ref and having absolute blasts with some of those themes. Number three on my list, The Neon Demon. Number four is also from 2016. It's an Australian film, I believe, and it's called Hounds of Love. Now, almost the inverse of The Neon Demon, which I said is a fun kind of romp. It's not a romp, but it's just fun to watch, I, I think, personally. Um, Hounds of Love is one of the most uncomfortable films I've ever sat through. Uh, my review to Izella when I came out was that made me feel physically sick watching it. It's directed by Ben Young and it's kind of a fictionalised version of some true events that happened in Australia but names and some details have been changed. It's essentially a couple who kidnap young women um, and don't do very nice things to them. They torture them, they blah, blah, blah. You know, you've seen that sort of stuff before. But the acting in this is terrific. I actually believed it was true events when I was watching it. I was, I was like, I need to Google what that story is. Apparently it is kind of taking bits from various uh, crimes and stories that have happened over the years. And it just sort of mishes them into one, mishmashes them. And, the, the you know, what comes out is very, very nasty psychological thriller. Not enough people, I think, saw this one. Not enough people 
talk about this one considering it's only a couple of years old it seems to have been forgotten it shouldn't be it's very uncomfortable it's very very nasty and it's very very good number four hounds of love and finally i'm going to close off my list um not in chronological release date order we're going to jump all the way back this is the earliest i'm going to talk about it's from 1968 and it's called whistle and i'll come to you it's not even a feature-length film. I believe it's only like 40 minutes long. It's a BBC um, TV one-off sort of special. They remade it in 2010, something like that. But the 1968 version is the one I'm going to talk about. It's the only one I've seen. And if you have not seen this, and you like horror stories, and you like ghost stories, and you like to be scared, then this is something, undoubtedly something, that you need to check out. Um, I found it on a internet forum several years ago. Somebody had just commented on a what some you know a, a thread about what scares you. Somebody had just commented the words. I'll always remember it. Just said, "Whistle and I'll come to you" is the stuff of nightmares. And I was like, immediately, I'm gonna have to Google this. I'm gonna have to find out what it is. And then subsequently, I have posted this on Reddit, and um, people have got back to me and said, "Thank you for that recommendation." So I'm just getting out there again. It's just a ghost story. It's 40 minutes. It's kind of quiet. The only review that I think needs to tell tells you what you need to know about this. When I told Izella to watch it for the first time, she watched it alone and then immediately got back to me after it was finished and said, I prayed at the end of that. Now, this is someone that I have seen terrified by The Exorcist. I've seen terrified by The Conjuring. I've seen terrified by things like Annabelle and Chucky, um, or It, like has a fear of clowns and dolls. I've seen all of these things. And I have never once caught her praying at the end of something. And yet Whistle and I'll Come, Whistle and I'll come to You brought her to that reaction. It's dripping in atmosphere. Not enough people talk about this. If you have not seen it, I don't care how you get your hands on it. It'll be streaming somewhere. It'll be available to buy somewhere. Whistle and I'll come to you. That's the best thing I've recommended to you today for Halloween. It is perfect for Halloween. It's probably even perfect for a good Christmas ego story as well. Get the lights off. Get the curtains closed. And get it watched. So those are my five recommendations. Again, just run through them. That was first one was Frenzy from Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, then it was Kill List from Ben Wheatley. Then we had The Neon Demon from Nicholas Winding Refn, Hounds of Love from Ben Young, and Whistle and I'll Come to You, um, which I don't know the director of, but it doesn't matter, because whoever it was, he did a great job. Get it watched. Get them all watched. So thank you again for Dakota for throwing this in. Apologies if it was a bit all over the place. Um, as I say, we're getting ready to go on holiday. Kind of minds all over the place here. But... I wanted to throw in some recommendations that people don't talk about enough. If you want to watch the classics like The Shining, The Exorcist, whatever, feel free to do so. I do it all the time. I love The Shining. It's my favourite film ever. Doctor Sleep's coming out this year. I can't wait to see it. But every now and again, you just want something you've never heard of before. And I hope, I hope, I hope, I hope that I was able to do that with my five choices. If you can get a chance to listen to another horror movie podcast scare traducing is 
more than welcome to have you as a listener. Beware of the blob, it creeps and leaps and glides and slides across the floor, right through the door and all around the wall. A splotch, a blotch, be careful of the blob. Callum, thank you so much for sharing those. Uh, I myself have only seen one of them, the Neon Demon, and what's crazy is I've actually seen 22 Alfred Hitchcock films. You can check my complete listings on Letterboxd of where I rank them. <laughs> Frenzy is one that uh, neither of us have seen, which is which is kind of crazy. We're we're trying to be a completionist for Hitchcock, and we just haven't gotten around to that one, I guess. Yeah, it's on my list, <laughs> especially now. <laughs> Along with like the remaining fifteen to twenty or whatever it is, and we're getting to the point where they're they're really lowering in quality. Yeah, <laughs> and I just keep going back to the birds. I gotta stop rewatching that one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the next movie on our list is The Haunted Strangler from 1958, directed by Robert Day. This is a movie that stars Boris Karloff, the great Boris Karloff, who you know from Frankenstein and a bunch of other classic Hollywood monster films. And here it's almost a Jekyll and Hyde-like movie where we get this flashback sequence of... Uh, someone being sentenced to death, a death, a one-armed man who's apparently um, strangling people with one hand, and then when he doesn't have enough power, he starts stabbing them until they die. And then we have this uh, writer who decides he wants to write a book about this 20 years later, and so he's investigating and finds a whole bunch of stuff, including digging up the grave of this uh, man who was uh, sentenced to death. And suddenly, because he finds uh, his uh, scalpel, which he was the murder weapon, suddenly Boris Karloff's character becomes haunted by this strangler, and he himself starts uh, continuing uh, killing in the exact same fashion that this original killer did. This was something that I never heard of before. Basically, I just was searching through horror movies and saw that Boris Karloff was in it and thought I'd give it a chance. And I was so happy that I did. This is my favorite one of the whole batch. What did you think of it? Yeah, I thought it was really good and like so convincing. I thought his performance was great and what really anchored the film, but also just an interesting story. And without giving anything away, there's like something that happens in the middle of it and you're just like, what? It was like a complete shock to me. I literally have never heard someone audibly... <laughs> react to a twist like that before yeah that, it was a first it was quite vocal yeah um they, they did some really interesting work where you know if, if anyone's seen any of the dr jekyll and mr hyde they're they're interesting there's a million renditions of it including in other horror franchises but you have your uh dr jekyll character who is your respected scientist and then they turn into this crazed madman uh named mr hyde and you know their hair gets all disheveled and they usually get some sort of prosthetic work to make them look even worse and things like that uh they couldn't figure out the best and cheapest way to do that for Bar boris karloff especially with what they want to try to make his face look a little dis disfigured and then he reminded the the 
the costume, the, the makeup designer that he has dentures. And so he takes his dentures out and suddenly his, he's got no jawline anymore. He would suck his lip under his teeth and you could see that he's got like little stubs of teeth in his gum and he'd mess up his hair, put a little bit of makeup around his eyes and he looked absolutely deranged and it looked so good. Yeah, he also like looked completely different than when he was being his normal self. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of amazing to find out that that was, that there was very minimal or no like prosthetics involved. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There, you know, if, if anyone has seen the, the movie Ed Wood, which uh, stars a character Bella Lugosi and, and then he kind of has a few meltdowns about Boris Karloff being compared to him. <laughs> and he talks about how being Frankenstein is the easiest performance. All you need to do is grunt and it's all in the makeup where Dracula is a much more refined character to play. And so that's, you know, I've seen a few Karloff films and I've never, you know, really taken note of his acting ability, but this was a really strong performance. You know, he had two very clearly defined characters and does a really excellent job with both. He is the this elegant, intelligent writer who has a a history of uh, of knowing both science, medical stuff, um, and, and really sort of criminal psychology. And then he's got this real deranged lunatic where he's barely cognizant and doesn't really speak very much. And it's, it's such a, a beautiful performance. Both of them are, are, are equally interesting. Yeah, yeah. And I enjoyed his struggle within his character with playing both and i I think that was the the key was to connect them uh you sympathize for both characters yeah uh really don't want to get more into sort of the plot points but safe to say uh is definitely one to watch and you know as i mentioned at the top of the show movie scary movies scare me and i don't like being scared this is this is definitely the only one of the bunch that unnerved me uh, it definitely has some some very graphic scenes in it towards the end as well, uh, and and really a little bit unnerving. I, so I highly recommend this one. Up next is uh, our next non-English film, which is Eyes Without a Face from 1960, directed by Georges Franjou, which is a French film that details the plot. Of, it's basically... Um, there's this young girl who was in an accident and her face was completely disfigured. Her father, who is both a psychiatrist and a surgeon at home, amateur surgeon, um, figures out how to graft faces. And so he is basically kidnapping and murdering other young women who sort of look like his daughter to graft their face onto his daughter's face. That's basically the entire plot of the movie uh as far as what it goes uh what did you think of this one um i enjoyed this one too actually i think it's a really interesting concept and idea and it's funny because whenever i tell anyone that i've watched this one or asked if they've seen it and i give them the description they're like oh what they're kind of like shocked and like that sounds weird like well it is it is a weird movie but i also um enjoyed it i would like to actually see a remake of it and see what they can do with that idea like in today's um hollywood i feel like it would be kind of much scarier it would definitely be more graphic but um i think it could be a really good um remake well it was 
very heavily the inspiration for the Pedro Almodovar film, The Skin I Live In, which stars Antonio Banderas, which has a, a very similar look to it and, and sort of conceit as well. I don't really, I've never seen it, so I don't know a ton about it, but I have asked around, and that is uh, a very direct homage to Eyes Without a Face. Yeah. This movie, I, I thought you know right from the get-go it's got a really good catch to it you're really sucked into it it's got some really beautiful imagery but i think the movie's downfall is it tries explaining too much there's a scene very early on um where the doctor um, this isn't a huge spoiler but uh, the doctor basically fakes his daughter's death so that way she is off the grid um because the the whole purpose of it is that he's going to give her a new face and so she can start a new life so to speak um and at the funeral he's standing there and he's got um two people beside him and then all of a sudden two men walk into the frame and they look kind of shady and you wonder what's that about and they're like who's the woman standing next to him and the other guy's like oh that's his assistant and who's the other guy next to him oh that's the fian that's the that's the daughter's fiance and he's also the uh, assistant to the doctor he's his protege at the hospital that he works at and he goes oh that's really interesting I'm, I'm sort of intrigued about where this is gonna go are these police that are after him is this other doctors like what, what's the deal with it and then all of a sudden that's it and so you literally have two characters there just to provide exposition of who these other two characters are that could have been revealed in literally any other way and it's you know one of the anytime you're you're in film school or things like that the number one rule is show don't tell if you need to explain something you've already completely lost the audience and that they're not going to believe it and there's a lot in this movie where they just keep telling instead of showing or over explaining what they're doing it's like we get it we we can understand relationships and we can understand what you're trying to accomplish just by showing it in this movie when they are showing it does a really good job there's a really fantastic opening sequence of the assistant carrying a body to a riverbed and tossing it in and you're you're so intrigued you're like what's going on how is this who is this who's this woman who's this body that they're dumping are they going to find them and and then they'll completely in the next scene throw all of that away by explaining everything right yeah that is a downfall of this film and it's unfortunate because i think it would be really good without it what did you think of uh the lead actress edith scob and her performance um i thought it was it was good i i like um her mannerisms and the way she walked around the house and how you could feel her loneliness and her distaste for herself and she was very like mm -hmm. which was really interesting because the movie is literally about you know projecting someone else onto her so her having almost this kind of blank slate appearance um was really interesting and, and kind of creepy at the same time yeah. too where she wasn't doing anything unnatural it was the way she would hold her hands or the way she would tilt her head to look at something because of her ma the mask that she has on um, which i have to say was also a very good mask like it's creepy in a very like subtle way yeah because it just looked like porcelain mm -hmm. so but it looked like it was molded to her face mm -hmm. so it was weird mm -hmm. uh and she wears these like big flowing robe type gowns that i later learned were designed by Givenchy, um which you know really added to it it's just sort of like real ghostly elegance to her 
Um, and then, you know, there's a few other really creepy moments with her where she takes off her mask a few times and you kind of see that. Uh, this movie is definitely the most graphic on the list. Yeah. Um, the movie is about doing face transplants and they show and you. And they show it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> like you obviously know it's not real, but at the same time, it's like you see a scalpel going to someone's face, which is creepy. Yeah. I had to look away at that part. <laughs> it, it, yeah. It was definitely intense. Um, you know, this is, this is a movie that has so much interesting stuff going on that if you've seen a bunch of Halloween horror films, especially foreign films, I highly recommend that you check it out because it's probably one that you haven't seen before and it would be nice to kind of expand and see some experimental French films. If you're, you know, mostly wanting more mainstream stuff, um, I wouldn't really suggest this to you. Uh, so it's, it's sort of where you fall. Would, would you agree with that or would you recommend this to, to most people? Yeah, I mean, I guess it depends on what they're looking for. Uh, if they if they want that like traditional uh, horror film, this doesn't really fit that mold. It, it, like you said, it's kind of more experimental. It's more quiet. It's a slow burner. So, I mean, it really depends on what the viewer would be looking for. And the last movie we're going to talk about today is Night of the Living Dead from 1968, directed by George A. Romero. Uh, in the past, I did a make-remake episode of dawn of the dead which was uh romero's uh first real breakthrough mainstream movie but this night of the living dead was his first full-length film and it basically completely set the template for what all zombies will be like forever because even if your zombies aren't like the night of the living dead zombies it will be compared to it and says so like you take something like 28 Days Later, where the zombies run. That's a selling point because it, they compare it to the original zombies and say, well, they run. They're not slow zombies. They're not walking dead people like that. Um, and so literally every single zombie movie will always be compared to Night of the Living Dead because it sets so many of the templates. It's got the slow movingness. It's got the fact that you need to destroy the brain or the head in order to kill them um being scared of fire like so many aspects of this movie is what we look at today so it was really interesting um and for the fact that it was a first time filmmaker he definitely had some really interesting shots they did this on a, a super low budget but, uh, and obviously by today's standards, I, I didn't really find it scary, but uh, it was definitely really interesting. Like, a, it was like watching a piece of history. Yeah, it was, it was good to see and to see where, where it kind of all originated. And it, like you said, with every zombie film that has come after this one, you can see where it's pulling inspiration from. And, you know, a, a group of strangers end up together and try and fight back. And there's always one guy who doesn't want to do what the rest of the pack does and so it's not just about the zombies itself but also just the scenario that is presented when a zombie apocalypse happens mm -hmm. which i thought was quite interesting and like you you watch the walking dead you'd see most of it up yep. until the recent seasons but uh isn't there like an entire season where they are stuck on a farmhouse yeah yeah actually there are there yeah. is yeah and it reminds me of um in the game call of duty you can play uh, just a, a fun side game called zombies where you're stuck in a house and you have to board up the windows 
and the zombies tear it down and enter and so you have to kill the zombies and reboard up the windows and there's more and more zombies coming so you, it's basically how long can you last sort of thing and which is basically the entire plot of this movie yeah it um is. I think what was interesting is I mentioned that it wasn't very scary, but at the same time, um, Steven Spielberg, bringing back to Jaws, uh, noted that you only you only have one big scare moment in a movie because after that everything will sort of pale in comparison. Um, and so in Jaws, the, the big sort of scare reveal is when they're diving and then the the severed head comes in up right in front of the divers. And this, this real big scare moment for me happened right at the very end where, uh, you know, this is probably the most seen movie of our list that probably most people have seen. So I'm not going to spoil too much, but I'm going to sort of talk about it. There's a moment where one of uh, the people in the house who is bitten comes back to life after dying and attacks two other people and that was really the only sort of scary moment for me and there's some really clever editing going on and some like your typical terrifying horror music over top of it uh and that was really the only kind of moment for me that was like oh uh what about you did, did you kind of feel the same way or is it just another not a scary moment because it's an older movie no it was definitely uh creepy and that scene lingered in one particular spot mm -hmm. if, if we're talking about the same one mm -hmm. which i thought was very graphic in comparison to the rest of the film you don't really see much in the rest of the film but like <laughs> this death was prolonged and quite unfortunate for the victim well we'll just say that the weapon was a uh like a spade like a yeah little, like a garden shovel yeah and then afterwards that person comes back to life and the spade is sticking out of their chest <laughs> yeah which is kind of comical i don't know if i am cool with that but you know whatever yeah we i think as a viewer it helps you sort of really connect this idea of uh you can see death happen and then you can sort of see the reanimation so to speak mm -hmm. um i liked how they sort of described how the zombies came to be um where it might have been uh, a meteor that had nuclear radiation that had passed by earth but it's not really confirmed it's sort of only a theory and they're not totally sure and then we're kind of we get lots of these news clips both from the radio and the tv and then it just kind of all stops where we're left out of the dark as well we don't know what's happening anymore uh and unfortunately due to that happening the heroes of the film finally start acting irrationally even more so than they have before because they no longer have a connection to the outside world and it, it really is sort of their downfall and this isn't your typical horror movie with uh with a really happy ending i'm not gonna i'm not gonna obviously spoil it yeah. but uh it was definitely a bit of a, a tough film to watch at the end yeah i wasn't i wasn't quite expecting it either and so that was quite a shock and it was quite unfortunate but i think that's what makes this film also really good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it may, it, that's what makes it a classic. Yeah. Um, so that's now two Romero movies that uh, we've both seen. I know those are kind of his two real big ones. He's made a bunch of zombie movies. He's probably made about 15 or so. The only other one that I I'm, would be mildly interested in would be Day of the Dead. Uh, so maybe that'll be one that we'll cover in a future ContraZoom episode. But uh, those are five films that we watched 
uh, on the Criterion channel that you can stream right now. There's actually a few others that we didn't get to that I, I made a list of. They include Vampire, A Most Dangerous Game, A Girl Walks Home Alone at Night, and Carnival of Souls. Um, so really, there's plenty of great stuff out there to check out. But that's our episode. Make sure you check out Scare Traducing wherever you listen to your podcast. Their latest series covered the Exorcist movies, all five of them. And in the past, they've also covered the Chucky movies, both Suspirias, and compared the original It miniseries to the two films that just came out recently. You can find the show both on Twitter and Instagram at Scare Traducing. This won't be the last time you hear about them on this show, that is for sure. Stephanie, as always, thank you for being my guest. Do you have any other favorite Halloween movies you would like to recommend? Oh, I thought you'd never ask. <laughs> well, as previously mentioned, The Birds is my one of my favorite Hitchcock films, and I usually try and watch it once a year. Um, it's not, people don't compare it to Psycho, and it's not. It's not on the same level, but it still has a, a nostalgic feel for me and why I love it so much, and so that's one that I always like to go to. Um, if you're looking for a good uh, stop motion, Paranorman is terribly frightful for what would be considered a child's movie, but I very much enjoyed it, and I've only seen it once and am like dying to go back and rewatch it to see if I still feel the same way. Mm-hmm. So maybe I'll do that this year too before Halloween. But probably my most favorite, um, I mean, Halloween scary movie would be uh, The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. I'm a huge fan of silent films, haven't seen enough, but this is one that I will always be game to watch, whether it's October or not. I just love the aesthetics of it. You can see like Tim Burton pulling inspiration from this film. I think all the shadows and creepy, weird, abstract buildings and sets is what really sets this movie apart from other uh, scary movies of its time, so I would definitely recommend that one. And we'll continue to love and enjoy that one. Awesome. Yeah, those are all great picks. I really enjoy them as well. Special thank you to Aesthetic Magazine for presenting the show and Eric and Kevin Smale for making the theme music. You can follow the show on Instagram and Twitter at ContraZoomPod or you can email me ContraZoomPod at gmail.com. Let me know what your favorite Halloween movies are, what scary stuff you watch this time of year. And make sure you subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a review and we'll shout you out on the show. Thank you. Thank you.